0: But you know, the thing that really burst my beta cells the most <laughs> like a grind uh, my gears, but for yeah, diabetics. Exactly. Hashtag burst my beta cells. Oh, yeah. It's a thing now. Yep, we're starting it. <laughs> The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor.
1: What is up everyone and welcome to the Buddies Podcast where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Garrett Panno, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Buddies Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about what is type 1 diabetes, What that means is a little bit more on the mechanism of how it begins and how somebody can become type one diabetic. We're also going to be talking about insulin and its physiology a little bit more and some common challenges of type one diabetes. This is something that Dr. Grady and I know pretty, pretty well, since we both are type one diabetic and we deal with this every single day, thousands of decisions every single day. And, uh, so without further ado, we're going to just jump right into it. So
0: Dr. Grady, what is type one diabetes? So, like we talked about in that first episode, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. So, essentially what that means is there's immune dysfunction where the body or the immune system tags our tissue as foreign. And so, therefore, it starts attacking it like it's a foreign invader. And so, um, in the case of type 1 diabetes, it's destroying the beta cells. The beta cells are the cells that produce insulin. And so, if you're destroying those beta cells you're going to have a decrease in the amount of insulin production. And therefore, that insulin is not going to be able to bring the sugar into the cells, and therefore you get high blood sugar. And that's when you start developing the symptoms of fatigue, weight loss, uh, frequent urination, thirst. Even um, in the later stages, you get nausea and vomiting. That was the case with me. I started getting nausea and vomiting, mm. uh, or not necessarily vomiting, but a lot of nausea, and that's why I started staying home from school. Mm. And eventually, my mom was like, all right, we got to take you to the hospital. You're home too much. So, um, <laughs> not, not not because you could be sick. You're just yeah. home too much. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but um, one of the other things that I noticed with myself was uh, also de- decreased strength. I was working out a lot with my dad mm. in the basement, and I was actually losing strength, um, and so... Let's talk about the mechanisms of an autoimmune condition, Okay, um, how that comes to be. So like we said, that's a kind of a loss of self-tolerance, meaning your body is mistaking your tissue for foreign tissue, and therefore um, you're losing tolerance to that tissue. So why does this come about? There's With autoimmune diseases there's no one thing that causes immune dysfunction. Mm -hmm. It's a complex of things that puts a burden on that immune system, which then creates a a situation where it starts to lose that self-tolerance. And so that's why there's no one cure for an autoimmune disease because of that complexity. It's just too complex. Mm. Um, And so some of the things that contribute to this that we've kind of been shown in research is um, something called NF-kappa B. So, NF-kappa B is a protein structure that's inside the DNA of a cell. And this protein structure controls the expression of genes that are responsible for the production of pro-inflammatory things like cytokines and chemokines. Okay. And these cytokines and chemokines, these are your chemical messengers of your immune system which tell your immune system where to attack and how much to attack. And so um, with this NF-kappa-B, it responds to the stimuli of things like stress, other cytokines, so if there's a lot of other inflammation flying around, that can affect it, also free radicals that are flying around, Mm -hmm. and antigens. Um, So antigens are things that your immune system tag as foreign. Okay. And so if there's a lot of foreign things to attack, obviously you're going to upregulate that so you can attack them and kill them. And so with that, if you're upregulating this NF-kappa B, what happens is you create a activation of your immune system, which is fine Mm. in the sense of trying to, you know, kill off an infection or something like that. But what we come into a problem is is when this is upregulated long enough, we get into a loop of infla- creating inflammation, the NF kappa B, and that inflammation then creates more production of that NF kappa B and we get into the cycle of inflammation, pro inflammation, and it just kind of compounds itself. So with this magnifying loop of inflammation that NF kappa B creates, that's where we start getting the miscommunication in the immune system and that loss of self-tolerance where we start to attack our tissues instead of just the foreign things that are in our body. Oh, okay. And so that's the whole auto, in the autoimmunity part. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's where we start attacking. Another thing that affects how our immune system gets into the situation of attacking ourselves is glutathione depletion. So glutathione is a molecule that's made in our body. That is a antioxidant, kind of like vitamin C, mm, okay. um, where it kind of quenches those inflammatory things. And it's been shown to support the regulatory part of our immune system. So the part of the immune system that helps keep everybody in check and not let them get too crazy and mm. start killing everything. Mm. Like a fun police at a party. Like it
1: just uh, the immune system's a party and it's going haywire. It's the fun police and says, all right, everybody just
0: calm down. Just yeah. calm down. Exactly. Okay. Exactly okay. right. I love that (laughs) analogy. Um, It also helps protect the barrier systems. When we talk about the barrier systems, we're mainly talking about our gut lining because that's a barrier from the outside, external environment, to our insides. And it also helps quench oxidative compounds. Um, And like we talked about before, oxidative compounds will activate NF-kappa-B. So that's how it helps with inflammation and that side of what we talked about with NF-kappa-B. And so, if we have glutathione depletion, therefore, we're going to have much more inflammation. So, to summarize what I've just said. Mm, Yeah, you said a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of minutiae there. So, inflammation is a very important part in the development of an autoimmune condition. In this case, type 1 diabetes. Okay. So, inflammation is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Another thing that's very um, important in this role of immune dysfunction that leads to type 1 diabetes is your gut health. So if, we have, if we're eating a lot of inflammatory foods or we got a lot of gut inflammation, um, what that does is it ends up compromising the gut lining. Oh. And so the junctions in between cells, mm-hmm. they start to become compromised and therefore permeable. And permeable essentially just means they're leaking things through that shouldn't be getting through. Things like large undigested compounds like proteins that are bigger than um, what we should be absorbing. Gotcha. Um, Also toxins, even bacteria can get through with these junctions being broken up. So what
1: what you're describing is leaky gut, correct? Yep, exactly. Okay, continue. I'm sorry, I just wanted to... I've heard that term before, so
0: just wanted to make sure. Yep, so this is leaky gut that we're talking about. And when this happens, these things that shouldn't be getting through are getting through, and the immune system is not happy. Mm. So again, we start this cascade of inflammation because we need to kill all these things that are getting through, and so we got to create all this inflammation again. And so with this inflammation, then we can end up making this problem worse because inflammation can break down those tight junctions Mm -hmm. and make this problem a little bit worse. And at the same time, you start getting systemic inflammation from this because those things are getting into the bloodstream and getting all around the body. And so Mm. now you're getting into a situation where you have inflammation all over the body, but it's concentrated in different places for different people. For you and me, Garrett, mm-hmm. it gets concentrated in our pancreas. Gotcha. Okay. And so this
1: mechanism seems pretty dang complicated. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it more oh, in the yeah. future. Oh yeah. And if you're listening and you don't think leaky gut is real or you've never heard it before, we will I'm sure we will talk about it much, much more in detail. But yeah, spoiler alert, both Dr. Grady and myself uh, understand leaky gut is a real thing. Yes. So anyways, <laughs> so th- the systemic inflammation that is coming from this permeable gut barrier that is now in the blood and there's now more inflammation, correct? Mm-hmm.
0: Gotcha. Yep. And like we talked about before, that inflammation can then lead to that loss of tel- self-tolerance and lead to autoimmune. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. So that kind of summarizes what type 1 diabetes is. Which is essentially autoimmune and how mm-hmm. that can kind of come about. So, Garrett, let's talk about now how um, insulin works in the body sure. and why that's so important for us. Sure. And, and before I get in there, too, I want to say, you know, we talked a lot
1: about the mechanism of the type 1 diabetes, but there is to a degree a genetic component as well. Mm-hmm. I think that is important to realize. And if I, I could be mistaken, it could have changed by now, but I think the most concentrated type one diabetics are those of Scandinavian descent. I think Sweden and, and people in Finland have, there's just really, really high rates of type one diabetes. So it, it's like you said before, it's a, it's a very multifactorial type of mechanism, but you and I understand that we, there's a lot that we can control, not saying that what you do can prevent type one diabetes, but you can always control other factors like inflammation and in your gut health and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, when it comes to insulin, you, you mentioned that insulin comes from your beta cells and which are on your pancreas. And most, I think as a type one diabetic, it's always funny to think about, you know, you've seen, at least I'm not sure if you've seen there's shirts that say, you know, proud owner of a broken pancreas. (laughs) Um, well, in fact, the pancreas is mostly exocrine function, which means it se- secretes a lot of digestive juices and enzymes, and is actually majority for that purpose of digestion. Um, and only a small fraction—I think it's like thirty percent—is for endocrine function or hormones such as insulin.
0: Yep. Yeah, we like to overlook that a lot, mm-hmm. especially being type one diabetics. Yep. We like we're focused on those beta cells, mm-hmm. but really the beta cells don't um, make up much of the pancreas.
1: Correct. Um, but when we when you have that autoimmune process and the problem comes once those beta cells are destroyed or mostly gone, you're going to lose that function of insulin. Now we've talked a little bit in the first podcast on insulin's role and things like that, but essentially what insulin does, or when it's being secreted, what signals the secretion is a generalized term called glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. And essentially your beta cells Primarily sense how much glucose is in your blood, and from that stimuli, they start to secrete and have factors that lead to something called proinsulin, and so within the beta cell itself, it's going to have this proinsulin, and essentially it's a much longer chain of insulin because insulin is a protein, and most proteins start in the form of a chain, and proinsulin is much longer. And it's not as three-dimensional as it's supposed to be, because it's it's not released yet. The beta cells haven't released this insulin into the blood, so that's why it's called pro-insulin. So one of the last steps to release this insulin into the blood is they have to cleave the parts that aren't needed for the insulin receptors. And so when the beta cell cleaves this pro-insulin, you are left with C peptide and you're left with insulin. And C peptide is actually a really interesting marker of type 1 or just any blood sugar regulation because c-peptide and the amount of c-peptide in your blood is a direct reflection on how much insulin you are making
0: mm-hmm. yep it can be a very helpful blood test to see like you said how much you're making and um how much you know of a problem you're in
1: exactly um and you know so that's something a both a type 1 and type 2 diabetic and those who are pre-diabetic are just trying to understand their Blood sugar levels um, could be—you could test it and get a lot of good information from it. Um, so you have your C-peptide. Now you actually have insulin. It's no longer pro-insulin. Its insulin is now more three-dimensional, and it's now can be in the blood. So now that insulin's in the blood, it's going to float around and it's going to bind to a receptor. And so a receptor is just something that—it's exactly like a lock and key for this part. But the lock and key, so the key is the insulin. The lock is the insulin receptor. Once they bind or come together, it's going to then stimulate a cascade of events or lots of events within the cell, and so it can. That receptor is going to stimulate things like lipid or fat metabolism. It can alter gene expression, protein synthesis, cell growth, division, and survival. Uh, we normally think about, especially you know, just being diabetics. Insulin is blood sugar, but in reality, insulin. It has so much function within the cell other than what we're about to talk about even a little more that it's, it's, I think, always important to remember that insulin does more than just blood sugar regulation. So on top of that, what happens when that key goes into that lock for sugar metabolism and specifically for skeletal muscle, for adipose tissue and cardiac or heart muscle, it's going to stimulate something, a transporter called GLUT4. And that GLUT4 is the actual door that allows glucose in the cell so you have your key which is your insulin you have your lock which is your insulin receptor and once those connect it's going to actually bring the door to the plasma membrane or you can think it's not a wall because normal humans don't have cell walls that's for plants but (laughs) uh but for just talking about you can think about the wall of the cell and it actually brings the door into the wall and allows the glucose then to go in through facilitated diffusion
0: All right, so I'm envisioning like Monsters Inc., where the door comes out. Oh my goodness! And yes, then you can open it. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah. So then, the in Monsters Inc., the insulin would be the the scare cans, and the insulin receptor would be what locks (laughs) onto this. Yes, exactly. Wow, that is fantastic. (laughs) Um, Anyways, once you have the the door approach you, and glucose can go into the cell, and that's going to then lower your blood sugar and to the appropriate amount that it needs to happen. So in a nutshell, that is how insulin lowers your blood sugar. Now, the half-life of insulin is about 15 minutes. And if we're about to, I'm sure we're going to talk about different forms of insulin on, uh, I think, the next podcast. But in general, you know, you can think about it. Regular, standard of the mill insulin will be in your body for around two hours. But because if you think about it as a hormone and just something in your blood it almost depends on how fast that blood is moving and your heart rate. And so if your heart rate changes, it's then going to affect how fast you use that insulin. So if your heart's pumping really fast, the insulin in your blood is going to be moving around. It's going to run into these receptors more and it's going to facilitate more diffusion. I think that's a really important point. Once we talk about management a little bit more, and when we talk about exercise that you can really keep in mind. So I just kind of wanted to point that out. Yeah. Tease that out there. Exactly. Now I also did talk about glute four, the door. Now that, there's a number on that door for a specific reason, because there's lots of glutes, not just your glute max and minimum <laughs> and things like that, or flutes or whatever, but uh, lots of glute facilitated diffusion, lots of doors, different types of doors. Um, I think there's about 18. I, this I I would should have double checked, but <laughs> I'm only going to talk about the first five. So that we have glute one, two, three, four, and five. So GLUT4 is what we already talked about, and that's on the skeletal muscle, the cardiac muscle, and your adipose tissue, which is your fat. I should have clarified yeah. that. Uh, but GLUT1 is in your blood, so in your blood, red blood cells, within the blood-brain barrier, and parts of your heart. So those are the tissues where you can find GLUT1, and it's actually insulin-independent.
0: Oh, so you don't need insulin for those.
1: No, or at least not for this one. So for GLUT2, this is also another insulin-independent one. And this is, it can be found in your liver, your pancreas, parts of your small intestine. Now for GLUT2 to work, it actually has a low affinity for insulin to bind to its receptor and allow GLUT2 to go to the that wall or that plasma membrane. So essentially you would need more glucose for this to kind of come up and have signaled to be on the door because okay. it's insulin independent. So it has a Lower, or rather has a higher KM, which is just biochem talk for having lower affinity. So that's GLUT2. We also have GLUT3, which is another insulin independent, and that's found in your brain and your neurons and sperm. And I'm not sure if I, we can say that. Maybe we'll beat <laughs> that out. But we're, we're just talking yeah, about science exactly. here. Uh, exactly. Nice. That has a higher affinity to bind. So compared to GLUT2, GLUT3 will have glucose uptake much, much faster. So I think that's really significant to point out is that glute three, which is in your brain and within your neurons is insulin independent and you do not need insulin for those, for it to allow glucose into those cell types.
0: Yeah. It kind of shows you how important it is to get energy to your brain. Exactly. And, system.
1: and when it comes to management of it, and when you think about it, your brain is the highest functioning center, right? And so because it's so important, it's like, I don't care if you have insulin or not, I need my glucose. Mm -hmm. Because about 90% of the brain runs on glucose. And so it's just very important. And when it comes to thinking about why I need insulin, your brain doesn't need insulin when it comes to glucose metabolism, which is, I think, a kind of a wow. That's that's a really surprising fact. I know when I learned that and read that in some literature, I was pretty surprised. Yeah, that is crazy. And then the other one we haven't talked about is GLUT5. And GLUT5 is also insulin-independent, but this is specifically for fructose not glucose. Ah, okay. And the GLUT5 can be found in your enterocytes or of your intestinal epithelium. So what that means is on the edge of your intestinal wall, those cells will uptake or take in fructose, and those do not need insulin. So depending on, now fruit in general, ha- can raise your blood sugar. We all know that. You, yeah. You're feeling low blood sugar, you're going to have some fruit. Well, whatever fraction of that fruit is has fructose in it that part of it doesn't need insulin the glucose does and that's still going to affect your energy but that's why that's part of the glycemic index and again I'm sure we'll talk about more of this yeah. in detail but I think it's really interesting to and important to point out that GLUT5 and when it comes to taking up fructose into your cells that also does not need insulin but where we do need insulin is that GLUT4 which we talked about which is the paradigm and the dogma of type 1 diabetes is insulin leads to the insulin receptor that leads to GLUT4 on the cell wall or the plasma membrane, you know, more accurately, and that will allow glucose into the cell. And that is found in your skeletal muscle, your adipocytes, and part of your, most of your cardiac muscle as well. And so the reason why that's important is we have skeletal muscle or just regular muscle all over our body. And so that's going to take up a large majority of the glucose that we use. Mm -hmm. Um, So in summary, I know I've talked to a whole bunch about this, but So again, insulin binds the receptor, activates GLUT4, glucose gets in the cell and the amount of insulin in your blood therefore activates more receptors or more of those GLUT4s there and will cause more glucose uptake in the cell and you can lower your blood sugar and control it that way. So if you had less insulin in, you might not need as much glucose in the cell or won't allow much. So you can kind of fluctuate it. The insulin can be the gas pedal and the brake at the same time and but... This part is, is why you can get have hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. Okay. If, if you have too much insulin at one moment, it's going to then still bind the receptor, still bring GLUT4. And regardless, let's say if you're at a perfect 100 and you have too much insulin, it's gonna just draw all that glucose in your cell and put more of those monster ink doors on that plasma membrane. Mm. And so that's what drives hypoglycemia when you take too much insulin. I gotcha. So it. So with a type 1 diabetic, it's not that they're low all the time or they're high all the time. It's the management of the amount of insulin that will change their blood sugar levels. And sometimes they need insulin and sometimes they need some sugar, some mm-hmm. glucose. Yeah. And I think that's really important to distinguish that. Um, I, I don't know about, about you, but most people are like, oh, you're type 1? Like, I thought you couldn't eat sugar. Well, a lot of times you're going to need sugar. You yeah. just had a juice box before yeah. we even... <laughs> yeah. To this There's podcast. a lot of people
0: that say that. Then, when you're in trouble or you're feeling bad, they're like, oh, give him sugar. Mm-hmm. No matter what is happening, they're like, give him sugar. Mm-hmm. There was one time I was on... Um, I, was, I was working for somebody, and we had, like, this crew. Mm. And there was one other type 1 diabetic. And um, he was on a... Um, we were riding on buses, and he was on a different bus. And all of a sudden, the bus stops, and I get called to the front. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. But I wasn't. <laughs> um, but they, um, they called and said that this type 1 was feeling really bad. And the symptoms that they were saying, I'm like, sounds like he has high blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And they had already said, oh, give him sugar. That'll make him feel better. I'm like, no, 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 mm-hmm. stop, stop, stop. Yep. He needs to take some insulin. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just funny how people in right. different situations right. are just get mixed up with what you need.
1: And you can't blame people. Yeah. They, I mean, they really don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, that's partly why we're doing what we're doing right exactly. now. We're just trying to um, educate as much as we can and, and have some fun. Um, but it's also interesting to know how these things work from the Monsters, Inc. to the of kappa b yeah. you know. <laughs> um, it, it, it all is important when understanding the mechanism and, you know, what is type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. So I think it's safe to almost summarize type 1 diabetes. Like you said, it's an autoimmune condition where your beta cells are destroyed or almost completely gone, and therefore you can't make insulin. Without that insulin and without that brake pad, um, you're not going to be able to put that glucose into your cells. So therefore, type 1 diabetics normally need, or, you know, pretty much all the time, unless you just get first diagnosed, insulin. Mm -hmm. And if you have too much, it can lower your blood sugar too much, but if you don't have enough, it'll raise it. It becomes this management game of insulin. Yep. Game of life. Mm -hmm. Insulin is life. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I think now that we've kind of summarized what is type 1 diabetes, I think we can almost speak, you just... Had a little bit of a story, but what are just some common challenges
0: that, that you have as a diabetic, ready? Yeah, I think to kind of put it in a broad sense, I think most type 1 diabetics can agree that it's just a lot of burden on your time, your energy, the amount of stuff that's going on in your brain just to control your diabetes. Because mm-hmm. you've got a thousand things going through your head on just how do I maintain a good blood sugar? Or how do I get back to a good blood sugar? Um, because you constantly are trying to plan ahead, whether that's for um, a meal or for activity, or you know, you, you know you're know, you gonna be without a meal for a while. Um, constantly planning and coordinating things to make sure your blood sugar stays as good as possible. Mm-hmm. And also I would think the consistency of trying to keep that number, and the consistency um, of your day-to-day mm-hmm. um, is kind of a burden, too, um, and a hard thing to do. To try to be that consistent over a lifetime is very hard. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that really bursts my beta cells the most, <laughs> the re- thing that really bothers me the most. Like a grind um, my gears, but for yeah, diabetics. Exactly. Hashtag burst my beta cells. Oh, yeah. It's a thing now. Yeah, we're starting it. <laughs> I would say is in those really important moments in my life. So whether that's a job interview or a test or a athletic competition where my nerves are running at on high and I really should be focused on the task at hand, Mm -hmm. but my brain is thinking mostly about, all right, how do I maintain a good blood sugar? So that Mm -hmm. way when I have to perform, I am going to be performing at my best because Mm -hmm. when my blood sugar is high or my blood sugar is low, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to perform at my best. Mm -hmm. Um, And probably almost every time I'm in that situation, my blood sugar is going to be wonky Yep. because all the stress and hormones that are involved with stress throw your blood sugar all over the place. Mm -hmm. Most of the time for me, it goes high, but sometimes it'll crash low Mm -hmm. and I got to deal with that. Yep. So um, that's... That's one of those things for me that's just really hard and frustrating because it's like, those are the times where you want to be your best mm-hmm. and the diabetes is not letting you be your yeah, best. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you said that probably the
1: most important test of my life about a month ago. So I was still in school to be a chiropractor. I'll graduate four months from now, but I was taking my last board exams and it's like a practical, you know, standardized patients doing these procedures or whatever. And I had a lot of stress going on leading into it. Not only was it the most important test of my life, lots of other stresses going into it with just life in general. And I needed to perform well. And for the life of me, I could not control my blood sugar during it. And I had my pump on me, and it was just 200, 200 plus. And I I was giving myself bolusing. I was taking my pump out in the middle of this exam, hoping I was like, I hope they don't think it's a phone. Like <laughs> it's not, I'd literally just try to control and yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about all this in the middle of the exam. That's like a three or four hour exam. And it's just,
0: that, that can really throw you off. Oh my God.
1: It, it was, it was throwing me off. Hopefully. I mean, hopefully it didn't throw me off. I'll yeah. find out, you know, a couple of weeks from now, but when you need to be your best, it's always unfortunate because it can't, it's not always that way, mm-hmm. but having to manage that in addition to the stresses of life leading up to the exam, leading up to that wrestling tournament, leading up to that, you know, job interview, whatever it is, it can it can mess things up and it can be very frustrating. So I totally agree with you. Yeah, um, I think for me, a very frustrating thing when I started to take control back to live the life I wanted and live the life that I deserved um, and trying to manage my blood sugar was understanding how I could control my blood sugar at night. Just because when you're sleeping, it's a significant portion of the day. Whether you sleep for four hours, mm-hmm. which I don't recommend, <laughs> or you're sleeping for you know seven, eight, nine hours, whatever it is, um, that's a large amount of the day where you can't respond. Mm-hmm. And diabetes doesn't stop for anything. Yep. It doesn't matter if you're sleeping. Doesn't matter if somebody is in a car accident. It diabetes doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. And so, trying to when learning how to control my blood sugar while I was asleep and what I had to do and figure out patterns before I slept and patterns after I slept and what was probably going on in the middle. And just all of that was a very frustrating thing. And I think it's a very important thing for diabetics and type ones to start to probe at and understand, Mm um, because it's, it really impacts your overall blood sugar throughout the day, whether you're looking at a one C or whether you're looking at your total, just average blood sugar through Mm -hmm. a different
0: measurement. And just like, your health and how you feel the rest of the day mm-hmm. because if your blood sugar isn't very good, chances are your sleep isn't going to be very good. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, and everybody knows sleep affects how you feel, how you function. Mm-hmm. Um, and blood sugar affects how you feel, how you function. So right. those two things being off can create a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. And I, I've never wanted to use my diabetes as an
1: excuse. I would hate myself and then, and it doesn't matter if you should or shouldn't, it's a natural feeling to use it as excuse. You show up Mm -hmm. the next morning and you feel like crap and you say, sorry guys, I just, my blood sugar was all over the place last night. People are empathetic and you know, they actually want to, they understand when they say that, Mm -hmm. but I never want to blame my blood sugar for my lack of control of it. Yeah. And that can get a really big head game too, Mm -hmm. is feeling like a failure and then feeling like, you don't want to use an excuse and you because you didn't control it, yeah. you know and there's sometimes where you just mess up. there's sometimes you don't understand and it's it can be very unfair to yourself in terms of your own self-worth and your own self-talk. Um, but I've always been frustrated when I've had to say, sorry guys, I was late because my blood sugar. Um, it's something that I feel like anything else in your life, if I was talking about a job or talking about a dog, you know nobody's like late to a meeting, and or they should that's not a real excuse if you know like you're late to a meeting and it's like, oh sorry my dog was XYZ yeah. you know <laughs> my dog, which is called diabetes yeah. was doing this you know and that's kind of what it almost feels like mm-hmm. and it's different but I don't know I think yeah. that's important yeah, I think to understand
0: yeah it, you made a good point about how you feel and how the rest of the world sees it because mm-hmm. I think the rest of the world sees it as a very valid excuse and will take it mm-hmm. any day of the week but I think We are very similar in our thought process of, like, we don't want to use it as an excuse because Mm -hmm. we know we have the ability to control it. Right. And so if we don't control it and then that affects our responsibilities, we feel like we failed because Mm -hmm. we know how to control it. We should have controlled it. We didn't. And we ended up sacrificing our responsibilities or letting somebody down. Mm -hmm. And so, it you know, it hurts us.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And this is just, this is just something that type ones go through every day mm-hmm. and, and as well as just people with chronic disease in general too. Yeah. You know, it's easy to feel the, those ways, but I think it's important to realize that, you know, it's, there's another day and you try to learn what you can Yep. and you learn from it and you just try again. Yep. Start yep. honing it in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So with the, all that being said, you know, we were talking a lot about what is type one, common frustrations that we've had personally and i think that other type ones might understand as well you know mechanisms of insulin all those types of things but we really didn't talk about management of type 1 diabetes but that's something we're going to talk about on the next episode oh Oh, yeah hitting them with the hook (laughs) leave it up with the hook (laughs) so without further ado i appreciate you guys listening to our jargon of some of the in-depth conversations and i'm sure we're going to go over these again in much more detail and in a different context. i um, very excited about some future conversations we're going to have. So Grady, I appreciate you, you saying your words and hope people appreciate me saying my words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see you on the next episode of the Die Buddies podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on The Die Buddies Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. Thanks.